Hey friends, Jason Miller here. You're listening to the South Bend City Church Podcast. If you'd like to watch this teaching, just look for South Bend City Church on YouTube or find our Instagram account at SB City Church. Whether you're local and tuning in this way because our gatherings are suspended because of COVID or you're a member of our long distance digital family, we love you and we hope you're well served by this teaching. If you'd like to financially support the work, please go to southbendcitychurch.com slash give. So I was watching Star Wars a couple months ago with my daughters, and there was this moment in the movies where the heroes were fleeing what seemed to be an entire planet full of people out to get them. When one of my daughters, Sophie, paused the TV, she looked at me and she said, how on earth did they get all of these people to become bad guys? To which I responded, I think the problem is that many of them probably think that they're actually being good guys. And she said, but they're still hurting people. And then in a moment of humility, she added, I hope we never do that. Yeah, me too. But what if in some ways we already do? What if sometimes we're not always the good guys? During this season of Lent as a church together, we're going to the scriptures to acknowledge the reality that we're not always heroes. But as we do that, we need to know first that the Bible is an upside-down story. In many ways, it plays out the opposite of what we might expect. There are heroes and there are not-so-heroes, but they don't always look the way they might typically look. In the stories throughout the Bible, the heroes are often the outsiders, the poor, the weak, the foreigners, the oppressed, the enslaved. These are the heroes. And the message for those people, pretty consistently, is one of solidarity and encouragement and blessing. But the Bible is also filled with not-so-heroes. And the not-so-heroes are often those that find themselves at the top of the pyramid. The strong, the powerful, the religious, and the wealthy. And often the message for them is one of warning, caution, and challenge. Now, if you're anything like me, I want to find myself in the stories of the heroes. As I read the stories, that's where I see myself. I want to find myself among those who are in the groups that receive the encouragement and the blessing. But reality is, is that sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we find ourselves in roles and positions in life that are more often aligned with people receiving caution. We're not always heroes. So today, as we look at this throughout the scriptures, we're not going to be looking at individuals, but we're going to be looking at nations. So as we look at it this way, the ultimate heroes throughout the Bible's stories are the people of Israel as a collective nation group. The people of Israel started as this small ragtag people group that often found themselves on the outside of power. They found themselves as slaves in Egypt. They found themselves as exiles carried off to Babylon and Assyria. They found themselves as an occupied people group living in their land that was occupied by the Roman Empire. They've been through a lot. And to this group of heroes on the outside, God comes to them chooses them, walks with them, encourages them, and blesses them. 
Those are the heroes. And opposing them, you have kind of not the ultimate bad guys of the Bible, who are not individuals, but empires. These are the guys that when they come on the screen in the movie, people want to boo and throw things. Right? The ultimate bad guys are these empires, like Egypt, who was so powerful that when they saw a group of foreign Hebrews living in their land, they took them and forced them into brutal slavery to build their cities and their shrines and their monuments. We see the empires of Assyria and Babylon who became so powerful that when they start to take over the world, they conquered the people in the land of Israel and carried them off out of their homes, out of their towns, out of their uh, cities, and they carried them across, spreading them across the empire so that they wouldn't be a threat anymore. And then eventually you have the Roman Empire, who, as we know, amassed the largest militaries the world had seen to that point and conquered almost the entirety of the known world. And as they did, that meant that they once again conquered the land of Israel. And this time, Israel had to live in their land, knowing that somebody else had the power and control to decide what they could or could not do in their own land. These are the not-so-heroes, these empires. And it was the basic critique for all of these empires. The basic critique was, was essentially the same, that they used their power to force ahead their goals at the expense of others. They built up their military. They accumulated and hoarded their wealth. They expanded their lands. They protected their national interests. And they hurt people while doing it. Now, we might ask ourselves, how are we supposed to find ourselves in that story? The story of militaries and emperors and slavery. We're just people. How am I supposed to identify that or find myself there? Well, it's easy for us to wag our fingers at those empires and to separate ourselves, right? Those empires were evil. I'm not them. I'm not planning on enslaving the whole world, for example. But if we're honest, sometimes we do share similar tendencies, even if we have different or the best intentions behind them. I mean, if anyone had good reason to believe that they could never become like Egypt or Babylon, Assyria, or Rome, it was the very people of Israel, right? The people of Israel were the people of God. They weren't like the, the, the pagans of those empires. They walked with God. The people of Israel had been victims of the power of empire. So surely having experienced slavery at the hands of empire would produce a distaste for that, that they would never walk down those roads. Well, about that, there at least was enough risk involved that they might go down those paths and might find themselves in those places that they needed warned about it. We find in Deuteronomy 17, Moses, who was leading the people of Israel, who had led them out of Egypt, Moses was trying to have a talk to them about what life would look like now that they find themselves out from slavery and oppression and find themselves able to be independent and free on their own. And Moses is looking ahead to what that might look like for them and offers them this warning in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and following. Moses said this, "'When you enter the land of the Lord, Enter the land the Lord your God has given you, and have taken possession of it, and have settled in and into your own land, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all those nations around us. 
Then be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from your fellow Israelites. And the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. And the king must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. All right, so this is an interesting passage here that Moses is acknowledging at some point down the road, they might start to take on some of these things that they've seen from Egypt. They, when they're on their own, they might want their own king and they might want their own kingdom and the prestige that comes with that. And then Moses starts warning them about things like accumulating horses, which just seems kind of strange, like Moses is against pets or something. But in the context of these stories and in the context of empire, Horses and chariots are more than modes of transportation or animals. Horses and chariots are symbols. They're symbols of using power to force your way in the world. Moses is warning them, don't become like the Egyptians who amassed these huge militaries to force their way in the world. And then he also cautions them to, to not go back to Egypt to get these horses. And really, it's less about the, the, the location of the horses and, again, more about the symbolism of what Egypt represents. What we need to see here at its least is that the Bible doesn't just have warnings to empires, but the Bible has warnings to those who aren't yet empires to warn us of the dangers of becoming like them. So what happens? What happens to Israel? Well, we fast forward in their story ahead to the story found in 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, as Moses had predicted, Israel had made it out of Egypt. They had made it into the land that God had promised them, the promised land. They had become independent on their own. They established themselves in, as an independent nation, and they chose for themselves to, to have a king, to go back underneath the system of a monarchy. And so they first chose Saul, who Jason shared about last week, the story of Saul. And then after Saul was David, and then after David was David's son Solomon, who is known for his wisdom and pursuit of God in many ways. And they had finished their kind of comeback as a nation under Solomon, where as a nation they had become great. And they finished this comeback by building a glorious temple to honor God where they could worship God. They were building temple to God, not temples to pagan gods, but to God. They weren't building statues to Pharaoh or uh, monuments to the greatness of Egypt, but they were building a temple to God. Surely these are the good guys, right? Well, we pick up that story in 1 Kings chapter 10, starting in verses 26 and following. It says this, King Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities, we would call those forts, and also with him in Jerusalem. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and also from Kew. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. 
Okay, so not only were they accumulating horses for, for war purposes and chariots, but they were accumulating them from Egypt. And then on top of that, not only were they accumulating them, but they were selling these weapons of war and power and force in the world. They were selling them onto other countries, the Hittites and the Arameans. They had become arms dealers in the midst of all of this. But that's not where it ends. We see in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 15 and following, there's more to this story. It says this, Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple. What? Solomon built the temple to honor God using conscripted, forced slave labor? After all they'd been through, after all they experienced at the hands of empire, they now had their chance to make their own choices. And they're forcing slaves to build a temple to God. It goes on in verse 20. There were still people left from the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These people were not Israelites. Solomon conscripted and forced into slavery, the descendants of all these people remaining in the land, whom the Israelites could not exterminate, to serve as slave labor, as it is to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of any of the Israelites. They were his fighting men, his government officials, his officers, his captains, and the commanders of his chariots and charioteers. So, I guess it's not just the bad guys that fall into the patterns of Egypt and Babylon and Rome. It's crazy how easy it was for Israel to fall into these same exact problematic patterns. And I think the lesson for us here is that maybe there's something about being human that makes it difficult for us to handle success and power and wealth well. So we should ask ourselves, where do the circumstances of our lives sometimes look less like the hero Israel and look more like the not-so-hero Israel or Egypt or Babylon or Rome? And in those moments where we realize our lives look a little more like the power and the wealth of empire, we should ask ourselves the question, where might we be tempted to use our power to force, our head, to force ahead our own goals at the expense of others? Let's talk about some areas for us. First, let's start with politics. That's fun. Let's talk about our country. We live in the United States that in reality is the wealthiest, most powerful, nation in the world with the largest military the world has ever seen. If we had to decide, I'd say that sounds a lot like Egypt's. So are there ways that we as a country use that power to force things ahead in our favor at the expense of others? I would say there might be lots of ways that we should look at with caution. Ways in which we gain while others lose, this week in particular, I was really excited after the year-long anniversary of this pandemic wrecking our lives. I was excited to hear about the hundreds of millions of more doses 
of the vaccine that are coming into our country. And, and read articles saying that by the end of May, we should have more doses than we actually have people eligible to receive those doses in our country. And I was so excited about the potential for healing and, and health and, and, and freedom and joy uh, for us that we would get to experience. And then I read an article that said that there's some poor countries around the world that expect to not even get to see the beginnings of vaccine until the year 2023, for two more years. Yikes. And then it didn't feel so great anymore. And I'm not saying that's evil or that that's wrong, but I do think that the Bible has some warning and some caution there for us that we should be sensitive to, at the very least. I think inside our country, as we think about politics and power, we need to recognize that we have a historical pattern that those with power often use force to defend it. As a church, we've been reading through the book, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby for Lent, reflecting on the history of racial injustice in our country and the ways in which even the church has been complicit in that at times. And what we've seen is a pattern that has happened many times where white people in power have used violence, but have also shaped laws, or drawn boundaries, or controlled finances in a way that empowers and protects white communities while disempowering people of color, specifically our black brothers and sisters. And as the, as the book points out, this is not just something that's in the past, but this is built into the systems and the language and the politics that are so often still employed today. More examples of power that comes at the expense of others. But not just in our politics, what about our workplaces? What happens when we rise to power in our workplaces? Where we rise to positions of prominence, where our decisions that we make affect not just the goals of our company or not just our personal goals, but the decisions we make also affect the lives of those who work for us. When we make the decisions that affect the wages of others, the health and mental health of those who work with and for us, the health of the families involved, and the personal dignity of others involved. When we gain that kind of power, where do we need to be cautious that we don't force ahead our goals or the company's goals at the expense of others? And also, finally, in our relationships. And parenting, I've recognized that the vulnerability of children and the authority and power we have as parents can very quickly lead itself into empire-like dynamics if we're not careful. We may not come with horses and chariots, but what about the other tools we bring? As I reflect on my own life, my own parenting, I recognize that in moments of weakness, I've brought through power, anger, and harsh commands and guilt and shame into my interactions with my children as I try and move them forward towards the goals that I have for them or for our family? Are there any ways in which you've allowed your parenting to apply the tactics of empire? And I look at our marriages and friendships. For some personalities, power dynamics can become uneven 
where one person in a relationship rises to empire status while the other gets relegated to the outside. Where if we look at a relationship or a marriage, sometimes we see even in that relationship that the decisions that start getting made, that the paths that get chosen, begin to reflect just one person's power. And we have to ask the question then, how, what, how might we become Egypt in our own marriages and in our own friendships? So what is it for you? Where do you find yourself in positions of power? Where there may be the temptation to use that power to advance our goals, even good ones, at the expense of others. So finally, in this season of Lent, we're not just looking to shine a light on the ways in which we contribute to darkness or brokenness in the world, but we're turning ourselves then towards Jesus. First of all, may we turn towards the example of Jesus, who didn't just teach us about love and service and sacrifice, but he lived that truth for us. Jesus, who lived the truth that in the kingdom of God, whoever desires to be the greatest will be the servant of all. How does that change us to take on that service servant mindset as we go about the relationships and positions and roles that we have in our life. What does it look like for us to recognize that we have a Jesus who lived not as a powerful warrior, but as a humble and suffering servant? And beyond looking to the example of Jesus for another way, for a better way, we can also turn to Jesus for forgiveness and for grace, recognizing that the dinner table of God's grace is bountiful, unlimited, and always available. During this time of Lent, we're still having our open houses in Studebaker 112. I would love to encourage you to join us on a Thursday night or a Sunday morning. We have a COVID-safe, socially distant time for us to be able to just come and sit in the presence of Jesus sit before the table and participate in the Eucharist table of the grace of Jesus. That whatever we've done, whatever we've walked through, and whatever ways that we see in our lives the truth of things that we may not be proud of, that grace and goodness is there for us in the midst of us calling us forward. So may we go this week acknowledging the reality that we're not always heroes and heeding the warnings and the caution that come with that. But may we also come knowing that we have a Jesus who walks with us and draws us into something more and something better and is always filled with grace and forgiveness for us when we stumble. Grace and peace be with you, friends.